Welcome to episode 32 of The History Files. We're trying something a little new this week. As we announced last week, we're going to do our regular broadcast, or podcast, pardon me, every other week. And on the off weeks, hopefully, barring technical difficulties like we had this week, we're going to do something a little shorter. I don't know, we'll probably call it History Bites or something like that. Uh, Just something so we make sure we get some content out to you and just focus on one little thing per week. Uh, Today we're recording on November 27th, 2015, the day after our Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. And uh, originally I had wanted to do this on a film and have it be a media sort of deal, and I wanted to just do it on one of my favorite movies, which is called Topsy Turvy. It's about, it's a little biodrama about Gilbert and Sullivan. Came out, oh, 19, no, 2000? Criminy, you'd think I'd know when it came out. Well, we'll get to that later. Anyway, it's a great movie. It's a lots of fun. It's a Mike Lee film, and uh, that's what I wanted to talk about. But the more I researched and the more I thought about things, the more I realized that what I really wanted to talk about was just Gilbert and Sullivan. And as you might, some of you might have noticed, the uh, opening tune, the intro music for uh, our shorter segments here actually is from Gilbert and Sullivan and our outro will be music from Gilbert and Sullivan also as well. I just happen to like Gilbert and Sullivan a lot so you're going to have to cope with it. So anyway, my obsession with Gilbert and Sullivan started a long time ago and here we go. Writers and other artists love to quote from bygone literary icons, John Donne for romantic atmosphere, C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien or Chesterton for inspirational motivation. Of course, everybody quotes Shakespeare for every reason. For myself, I've always been attracted to quirkier sources that, to quote Pistol from Henry V, are more base, common, and popular. Okay, I quote Shakespeare too. He's kind of hard to avoid. When I was a kid, I read a lot of science fiction. Isaac Asimov's short story anthology, I, Robot, was one of my favorites. In Runaround, two astro-engineers find themselves in a predicament at a mining facility on Mercury. you got to cu- cut uh, Asimov some slack. He wrote it in 1941. Anyway, they've got a malfunctioning robot that's manifesting the equivalent of drunken behavior, part of which includes randomly quoting from Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. The silly, witty lyrics were the non-musical equivalent of earworms to my impressionable young mind. I'm pretty sure this was my first brush with Gilbert and Sullivan, and that brush was dipped in indelible ink. If you've never heard of Bader or Bader-Meinhof syndrome, you'll probably see or hear about it again sometime soon because of Bader-Meinhof syndrome. Basically, it's the phenomenon or syndrome or complex, depending on who you talk to, where something that you just saw, learned, or noticed for the first time suddenly seems to pop up everywhere. Gilbert and Sullivan, like Shakespeare, only with catchier songs, was like that for me. I noticed more references to them in writing for sure, but then it spread virus-like into other media. 
In Chariots of Fire, yes, I saw that in the theater because I'm old, Ben Cross's character falls in love with a co-ed he first notices in a production of The Mikado. And there is at least one other scene with folks around a piano singing other Gilbert and Sullivan standards. Then, later on, there was Raiders of the Lost Ark, with Sala bursting out with a British tar is a soaring soul on the pier after Marion kisses him goodbye on the cheek. At the time, I didn't know the actual particular reference, but when I did become familiar with HMS Pinafore later on, it made that moment in Raiders seem even more charming. So what's all the hoo-ha about a couple of upper-crusty Brits and their little comic operas? Part of it is the brilliance of the work. The tunes, even the lesser works, are catchy, singable, musically sophisticated, even if the actual stories are often nonsensical, cliched, and maudlin. The copyrights ran out years ago as of this recording, and so anybody can put up a GNS production or quote lavishly from them at whim, and they do, with varying levels of quality. Curious quips, cranks, and contradictions from Gilbert and Sullivan Light Opera found their way into popular culture from the get-go, and it was inevitable that a voracious reader and music nut like myself would discover them. It wasn't inevitable that I'd become a fan, but thanks to a big-time theatrical producer in the late 70s and early 1980s, I fell hard under the Savoyard spell. In 1980... Joseph Papp produced a revival of Pirates of Penzance that, for that summer's Shakespeare in the Park in New York. After 10 previews and 35 performances, it went to Broadway, where it opened in January of 1981 for an ultimate run of 787 regular performances and glowing reviews. Papp took some liberty with the canonical version of Pirates with new orchestrations, added dance numbers, and the addition of the Matter-Patter trio from Ruddy Gore and Sorry Her Lot from Pinafore. Part of the success of the Broadway production may have probably been due to the casting of pop icon Linda Ronstadt as Mabel and heartthrob Rex Smith as Frederick. One of Papp's other variances from the traditional stagings was to make the Pirate King and his crew more Errol Flynn-type swashbucklers than stationary caricature plus chorus. The role was brought deliciously to life by Kevin Klein, and you can watch him gloriously chew the scenery in the 1983 filmed version, along with much of the original Broadway gang, including Rex Smith and Linda Ronstadt, with the addition of Angela Lansbury as Ruth. The show toured the United States for quite a while, replacing various cast members with other big-name personalities as needed. After Linda Ronstadt's Mabel, or excuse me, after Linda Ronstadt, Mabel was played by a bevy of sopranos, including Pam Dauber and Maureen McGovern, Rex Smith's Frederick by Robbie Benson and others, and the Klein Pirate King by actor-singers like Treat Williams and Barry Bostwick. They even had Joanne Worley as Ruth at one point. Now, when the show hit Seattle in the winter of 1981-82, I was a nerdy high school kid. One night, I caught an ad for the show on the television, coming to the opulent Fifth Avenue Theater. It featured a stage full of pirates, singing, swinging, sword-swishing pirates, doing a boisterous rendition of With Cat-Like Tread. I was mesmerized. In these primitive days before the internet, I had no idea what I was looking at and no way to research it. I just knew I wanted to see that show. 
Nobody in my family or circle of friends was the least bit interested, unfortunately. My mom was kind of a Rogers and Hammerstein type, and everybody else was just kind of, yeah, whatever. So I begged for some dough and was allowed to call the box office and use mom's credit card to grab a cheap matinee ticket for a Saturday show. On a crisp winter afternoon, I drove to the Winslow Ferry, parked the little family Toyota, rode the boat, and walked the few blocks to the theater in Seattle in my peacoat, wool skirt, and penny loafers. From the overture to the obligatory salute to the queen at the end, I was entranced. I can't remember who played Mabel. Frederick was played by Peter Noon. Yeah, Herman's Hermits, that Peter Noon. Did anyone tell you I'm old? Anyway, the Pirate King was a bouncy, bearded, bombastic Jim Belushi, and they were all brilliant. I went home humming the tunes. I bought a copy of the score, I learned the songs on the piano, and I probably annoyed most of the known world with my obsession, and I still don't care. The story of how I was stranded in a blizzard halfway across Bainbridge Island on the drive home that night is another story, so I'll skip it. To suffice it to say, uh, walking in penny loafers and snow are a terrible idea, but I digress. When the original cast album showed, at our, showed up at our house, my sister, who was a general musical fan anyway, and I played it constantly. This was my introduction to Kevin Klein. May he ever reign. When I eventually saw the film version, I developed an instant crush on him. That man is a genius, but again, I digress. Anyway, so that's how I discovered Gilbert and Sullivan. Now, since this is supposed to be a history podcast and not just my personal history podcast, I guess you deserve a little actual history. So let's talk about Gilbert and Sullivan. William Gilbert, the librettist, and Arthur Sullivan, the composer, were first introduced to each other around 1870. Their first collaboration, Thespis, in 1871, was kind of a flop and pretty much lost to history. Uh, Mr. Doily Cart presented their next work, Trial by Jury, in 1875, and it fared far better, and a winning team was born. The Savoy Theatre, built by Cart for Gilbert and Sullivan in 1881, was the first public building in the world to be lit by electricity. Gilbert was a pioneer of what we now call directing, something that we take for granted these days, but it hadn't really existed before the late 19th century. Sullivan, too, rehearsed his actors and musicians quite thoroughly. He was also an accomplished musician and composer from childhood and a gem in England's cultural crown by the time he reached adulthood and was knighted in 1883 by Queen Victoria. This was ostensibly for his serious music, which sadly never earned him anything close to what he made from the comic operas. This economic reality, coupled with his extravagant lifestyle, always drove him back to Gilbert and their unique creations. He suffered all his adult life from kidney issues and died of heart failure in 1900. Gilbert was also knighted by King Edward VII in 1907, the first British writer ever to receive the honor for his plays alone, as opposed to his plays plus his artistic work plus other services. He died in 1911, also from heart failure, while rescuing a young lady in a lake on his estate, a fittingly dramatic end to a long career of writing dramatic scenes. Now, here's where we get back to the, my original intent for the topic of this post, topsy-turvy. So if any of that stuff on Gilbert and Sullivan has piqued your interest, I highly recommend Mike Lee's 1999 biodrama, if that's a term, and if it isn't, I just made it up, Topsy Turvy. 
starring everybody. It's got just a pile of your favorite favorite British actors, notable among them being Jim Broadbent, who is uh, Professor Slughorn in Harry Potter. He's in Moulin Rouge. He's Bridget Jones's dad in Bridget Jones' Diary, Gangs of New York, Hot Fuzz. I mean, list as long as your arm. Then we've got Shirley Henderson, also in Harry Potter. She plays Moaning Myrtle. She's in the wonderful uh, history pick Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. And she's also in Bridget Jones' Diary as one of Bridget's friends. Then we've got Andy Serkis in a small but juicy role as the, I, um, I don't want to call him, well, I guess he's the choreographer, movement coach for the Savoy Theater. He's wonderful. You won't even recognize him. He's just, he's just awesome. And Timothy Spall, who's in everything. He's also in Harry Potter. He plays Wormtail. Uh, in addition to the, um, in addition to that, we've got some notable crew. We've got of course, in a music about Gilbert and Sullivan, you're going to have a lot of diegetic music, a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan music playing. But the score is by the score for the whole film is by Carl Davis, who's wonderful, and he's well known for his score to the classic uh, *Pride and Prejudice* with Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth. So the film covers a kind of a low period, interestingly enough, in the, their uh, careers of uh, producing their operettas. It was kind of a lackluster season after the huge success of HMS Pinafore and Pirates of Penzance. And they needed another hit. They just hadn't, they'd had a couple of crummy seasons. The company was struggling, but, and to, to make it even worse, Gilbert and Sullivan were kind of at odds with each other and they really couldn't reach any kind of creative agreement on the next project. So it just kind of dragged on and dragged on. There was a danger that the current production, Princess Ida, uh, which music from which I'm using as our outro for for this uh, podcast, uh, that was they thought Princess Ida was going to close and there wouldn't be anything to replace it and the theater would be dark, which is not great. So just when it seemed that this partnership of seven years was about to dissolve, Gilbert came up with a story set in Japan. The film portrays the inspiration for this as being a Japanese cultural expedition, expedition, exhibition that was in London, followed uh, by an incident with a Japanese sword in his library. Now, this is likely apocryphal since the exhibition didn't actually occur until a few months after the staging of the resulting production, but it makes for a really good story in the movie. What is factual was the growing trade between Europe and Japan and the Victorian craze for anything oriental. At any rate, the Mikado, the resulting show, would turn out to be one of the most successful stage productions, not just for the Savoy Theater, but for theater history, period. It was huge. And it was one of the most, and to this day, it's one of the most widely produced musicals at all. At the time of this recording right now, uh, Topsy Turvy is only available on Netflix as a disc. And you can't even find it to stream or anything on Amazon, or you can find DVDs for purchase. Check your local library. If my little teeny rural library has it, which it does, yours probably does too. So it's a really charming costume drama. It's chock full of interesting characters. It's gorgeously presented music and stage scenes. And I really defy anybody to watch it and not come away with at least a moderate appreciation for these two worthy gentlemen and their body of work. 
So I hope you've enjoyed this foray into the world of Gilbert and Sullivan. And be sure to visit SICON.net, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.net, for links to various items mentioned today, as well as a cornucopia of other fine podcasts from our little network. You can follow The History Files on Twitter, at History underscore Files, or on Facebook, at The History Files Show, or join our growing community on Slack by clicking the invitation link at SICON.net slash chat. In the meantime, join us again next time for another edifying, we hope, episode of The History Files. Bad cat. Meow.